Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History, uh, the podcast that takes you through the most interesting and uh, important but controversial episodes in the history of the Catholic Church. My name is Derek Taylor. I am your host for this podcast. Thank you all to everyone for listening, for all those who listen, wherever you listen. We are now sponsored by Spotify or Anchor by Spotify, whatever you want to call it. They took over Anchor, uh, my platform. So I'm on Spotify. You can follow me on Spotify. Follow me on Apple Podcast. Uh, you can also follow us on YouTube. You can please go subscribe there. Um, on the channel where I post these eventually. And uh, also on the web, churchcontroversies.com, on Facebook, and uh, also uh, on Patreon. If you have a Patreon page, if you'd like to donate to the podcast and make it uh, make a donation to help with my endeavor here, I'm very uh, gracious uh, and humbled if you do that. But other than that, uh, welcome to the podcast uh, if you're new. Uh, this is a um, this is a one-off episode this time. A few updates on the podcast before I before we get started. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the uh, current series I have going on is on Latinization in the Eastern Churches. The second episode has just dropped for some for patrons on Patreon. A few weeks it'll be available to everybody else. The next episode will be long and coming because I have a lot more reading to do for that one. <laughs> and uh, I am currently looking for um, part-time work because I couldn't pick up enough classes uh, this semester to cover. So uh, things are going to slow down, in other words, uh, at least with the main episodes. I have another standalone episode I promised earlier, a very good one on the Pearson Integrated Humanities Program. You want to look out for that one, but I also have reading for the do for that as well. I have writing projects. I have other things going on, so... I am trying to get a novel published, so I have lots of things going on, and so it's, it's, it's eating some time. But there will still be content coming, is my point, um, beginning with this episode. Um, I did this earlier with the the uh, episode on the Ordinariate. This is going to be a recording of a an old blog post, actually. <clears throat> I used to have an old blog, uh, which is no longer uh, in existence, uh, or no longer available anyway, uh, in which I would occasionally, you know, review historical films or historical TV shows. And so this is a review episode, kind of like the, the one with William Oddie's book. And instead, it's it's on the uh, the uh, Showtime drama The Tudors. This ran from 20, 27 to 2010. So this is more than a decade old. So it's kind of old a little bit. But uh, it's part of a trend. I guess it's slowed down in recent years. I guess they still have some of these, but got into these sort of, you know, um, HBO, Showtime, cable, um, you know, historical dramas. I have another one probably will be coming will be on the TV show Rome, which is one of my favorite TV shows. It's an HBO one uh, probably sometime next couple of weeks. Anyway, this is a long blog post on uh, on the Tudors, and this is kind of in my background. If you don't know, my my... PhD work is in early modern England, the 17th century. The Tudors takes place in the 16th, but it's a Reformation era show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Done pretty well, I thought, as I'll explain in the blog post as I read through it. Uh, a lot of people didn't like it. I have friends who didn't, who hated it. Um, and uh, we'll get into a lot of stuff, but I'll do this occasionally. I, I want to comment on this stuff because I you know, like film like everybody else, like TV. And so, and this does get into controversial stuff in the history of the Catholic Church. So, without further ado, here is uh, my review 
of the Tudors. TV, film, and history. A few remarks, the first section. Over the past few years, I have come to the conclusion that, despite all the potential drawbacks of having HBO or Showtime delve into the realm of historical fiction, these types of cable shows are the best vehicle for a meaty film drama centered on real historical events. This is so partly because one can be so much more thorough in a format where essentially you are producing a 50-minute feature film every week. Whereas in a normal feature film, you have at most two or three hours to flesh out the historical elements you might need to communicate to your audience on top of trying to sustain a dramatic narrative over the same time frame. This is not easy to accomplish, given the lack of interest most filmmakers have in historical accuracy, and the result is not often pretty in historical terms. A filmmaker's main priority is to make an entertaining film, not give a his visual historic history lesson. And if he or she is forced to choose, the history is going to lose out. And it is common for talented directors to make highly entertaining films that are complete nonsense, historically speaking, i.e. Braveheart, The Kingdom of Heaven, etc., etc. The extra time uh, in these series allows uh, producers like those of the Tudors to spend more time and effort on the background for certain aspects of Tudor life that I found laudable, and which I'll be able to detail shortly. Um, but one can see the difference between what can do in a feature film and what one can do in a long-running cable series, uh, best illustrated by comparing the Tudors with the film A Man for All Seasons. That film, beloved by papists like myself, does in some limited ways give you glimpses of the historical Thomas More. In one scene, both in Robert Bolt's play and in the film, Cardinal Wolsey is berating More for not being realistic about Henry VIII's need for an heir, now that Catholic Aragon, his wife, is clearly not going to produce one. And here I reproduce the actual scene. Bullsey. Then the king needs a son. I repeat. What are you going to do about it? More. I pray for it daily. Bullsey. God's death, he means it. That thing out there, referring to Anne Boleyn, at least she's fertile, Thomas. But she's not his wife. Bullsey. No, Catherine's his wife, and she's as barren as a brick. Are you going to pray for a miracle? More. There are precedents. This exchange, though it probably overstates Wolsey's cynicism, captures Moore's piety and his legalism almost perfectly in only a few words. And there are other moments in the play and film when Robert Bolt, the, the author, allows the historical Moore, or at least William Roper's uh, Thomas Moore, to speak unencumbered by the playwright's words, most notably in the final trial scenes. But overall, and Bolt admits, it much, admits as much in the preface to the published edition of his play, the film uses Moore's story as a mouthpiece for ideas he never would have countenanced, namely what are essentially existentialist and Protestant beliefs about individual conscience set against a tyrannical state. Moore, as his modern critics never fail to point out, aided the investigation of heresy toward the end of his tenure as Lord Chancellor. I have read different versions of the number of cases Moore helped investigate from as little as three to, many as seven, to as many as seven. And in any case, his concern was the authority of the church, the, quote, common conscience of all Christendom, unquote, and not the private individual in isolation from tradition and authority. This comes out in the trial scenes, but is at odds with the rest of the film, where Moore tells the Duke of Norfolk of the Pope's authority that, quote, it is not important that I believe it, but that I believe it, uh, unquote, a sentiment Moore would have rejected wholeheartedly. Bowles play in the film were only tangentially about the historical person Thomas More and more about creating a 1960s anti-hero anti out of the elements of his life story. 
The tutors, on the other hand, had ample time to delve into Moore's character, and apparently a greater desire to show the full range of his personality. Moore the loyal churchman comes through admirably, as does Moore the martyr, the counselor, and scholar. But the show also made a point of emphasizing Moore's heresy hunting activities. In one scene, he is shown creepily interrogating a Protestant printer, and attends his execution in another. As it happens, this is inaccurate, as Moore did not attend any of the executions um, for heresy uh, that he, whose prosecution he oversaw, uh, though he did certainly relish trying to oppose heresy. According to Peter Ackroyd, one of his biographers, uh, his tombstone testified that Moore was molestas, um, uh, to heretics, molest, to heretics, molestas being an opponent of them, molesting them. Uh, nor does the show make clear uh, how out of the ordinary it was for Moore to do this. He was tasked with this office of prosecuting heresy by none other than Henry VIII himself, something that was unusual because it was normally the province of clerics and theologians to, ter- ter- to determine matters of heresy, not laymen. Thus, the real novelty and irony of Moore's persecution of heretics is that Moore, in agreeing to do so, was helping the very Tudor state that would be used to destroy the institution, the church, he was to die for, and that in his desperation to oppose heresy led him to sanction the destruction of human beings, acts that were at odds with his otherwise deserved reputation for virtue. Nevertheless, the show made what I thought was a good effort to show this complexity in Moore and not really make him into the hero of a modern narrative alien to his actual beliefs. At least, it certainly did so much more effectively than did A Man for All Seasons. It is typical of Hollywood productions to make myths, and really of all humanity in general. They love to tell stories, no matter their truth, and I can hardly blame a director for choosing what makes a good story rather than trying to lecture his audience on history. Cynthia Harrop, a past historian of the American Historical Association, once wrote about the Tudors, in what venue I cannot now recall, in a rather snobby fashion, in uh, indicating that it was merely myth-making for the times, as if historians don't often do this themselves. Um, um, if you know anything about uh, the Reformation, or uh, you'll probably be familiar with the term Whig history, which is kind of about historical myth-making. It is true, however, that the two aims are not necessarily conflicting, and in the past, many filmmakers have simply not bothered to try. That is to be historically accurate. This is why I'm writing this post, because as far as I can tell, the makers of the Tudors made a strenuous effort to get to the, get the pertinent historical context of the times right, at least in some crucial aspects. And this deserves credit, no matter how mythical the show may be in total. So begin with the bad. The bad. The sexy Tudors, sex, sex, sex. <laughs> that's, the head, that's the heading on the post. <clears throat> Did you know that Henry VIII had six wives? Or that he stooped just about any woman he wanted to? Or that there, raunchy illicit se- that there was raunchy illicit sex going on at Henry's court? Do you really care? Yes? Then you probably love the series, since that was the most consistent aspect of the show and the least surprising thing about it. Uh, the cable shows that are historically based naturally have to cater to their audiences, in this case a Showtime audience. Essentially, The Tudors was a, was a soap opera set in the 16th centuries, and I believe one of its producers basically admitted this in an interview for what it's worth. There was no denying this, and one of the things they played up beyond historical credibility were the sexual escapades of the rich and famous. But didn't Henry VIII shag with lusty abandon? Didn't his courtiers? Absolutely. When Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, was caught in adultery and executed, 
Parliament had uh, Henry had Parliament pass a law stating that no one could, could become a queen unless she was a virgin. The French ambassador at the time noted that this provision would exclude most of the ladies at the court. Uh, that part of the show was realistic enough. What isn't are several episodes where Henry, where Henry or courtiers quote unquote have their way with lower class characters. For example, in one episode, Henry is traveling through the forest with his train and comes along a newlywed couple. The bride, naturally, turns out to be gorgeous, and Henry takes her back to his castle for a roll in the hay. Perhaps such a thing happened, but I am unaware Henry VIII ever did so, and likely it never happened in that way, for the simple fact that sexual attraction is in large measure culturally conditioned. Grabbing random peasants off the road to boink them sounds sexy to modern ears, I guess, but considering the lower classes likely didn't practice the best of hygiene, one doubts their superiors were in a hurry to take advantage of them. In another scene, one of Henry VIII's courtiers rapes a country housewife in the woods while her husband is gone. The same reasons for this being uh, unlikely apply in that case as well. Uh, even if such things did occur, they likely did not occur with the sort of frequency that they do in the Tudors. Just as an aside here, I had someone actually comment on that post a while back. There, that actually did happen. One of his courtiers did rape a housewife uh, whose husband was gone at one point. But again, it is sort of a thing that stands out. It's not necessarily common. And back to the, the post. Those are the most egregious examples I could think of, but there are others. For some unknown reason, the producers decided that Thomas Tallis, the famous court composer, should be gay, even though he was not. <clears throat> In another episode, the poet Thomas Wyatt seduces a young, nubile-serving girl of the, by that time, dismissed Catherine of Aragon, and she commits suicide. Now, people committed suicide in Tudor uh, times often enough, and though I'm no expert on that subject, I dare say there were probably a few women who committed suicide in such circumstances. But I'm also guessing they were fairly rare, which is why they attracted comment in the first place. And it is typical that in order to sex up the show, the producers chose to play up the more sensational aspects of the time period. In yet another scene, one of the king's spies, whose name escapes me, taunts the young Emerita Mary Tudor by asking her if she knew how to play the game of quote-unquote cunnilingus, a word whose meaning she clearly did not know. Again, this, these scenes serve little purpose other than that of titillating the audience. Again, I am not here to complain. When I say something is quote-unquote bad in a historical sense of the term in a film, I mean that there are, either by incompetence or in the case of all the sex and the tutors by design, things in the film that are historically nonsensical. The fact of the matter is, however, that the oversexing of the show was the price for its being made, one which, given its virtues, I think was worth it. It has other defects, though none so serious as this. At times, the personality of Henry or the main character was altered, I believe, to make him more sympathetic. The most notable example of this was that in the show, he openly regrets having executed Thomas More, while in fact it was actually Henry who insisted on his execution, when it was Thomas Cranmer, his Archbishop of Canterbury, who tried to intercede on behalf of Thomas More and John Fisher. Closer to the mark was More's own quip that, it, that if it could gain him a castle in France, Henry would surely cut his head off, which I think they actually have him say in the series. <clears throat> um, though the producers of the show did not try to hide Henry's faults by any means. I probably have forgotten other instances as well, but those are my main quibbles. And so what? This is only an historical soap opera, right? Well, it would have been, except somebody took their history seriously. Next section, the ugly, on-the-nose history. 
If you know anything about film or screenwriting, dialogue or writing that is painfully obvious or that leaves nothing to be developed by the characters in a scene is sometimes called quote-unquote on-the-nose writing. It's when the writer tries to make clear what is going on in the story to his audience by being painfully obvious. The same thing happens in the tutors at the level of historical background, in that some of what goes on, uh, goes on uh, or is spoken in the dialogue has little to do with the development of the storyline, but rather with conveying historical information to the audience. Now, what I'm about to say is actually to the credit of the makers of the tutors in many respects, but it also makes the show a bit clunky at times in terms of its pacing uh, and the feel of it. But this is also a strength of the film in another sense, which I'll come to shortly, but it can be uh, a weakness also, if only for the historically knowledgeable. For example, a friend of mine uh, has pointed out that in one episode, Moore makes a speech in which he begins by saying that, quote, I, as a humanist, believe in, uh, you know, uh, unquote, begins talking about what humanists believe. And this kind of dress, this kind of address simply would not have been made by Thomas More or Desiderius Erasmus or any other person that we call humanist today. And listening to it is really kind of clunky. And if you, <laughs> and this kind of painfully obvious dialogue with the standards of PhDs, and I have a PhD in this period, my friend does, uh, makes it really hard for him to take seriously. It never would have happened like that. But, of course, the show is written for a, you know, wide audience. People who, you know, they don't have PhDs. They don't know any of this. So I won't belabor this point too much, but it's a valid, if limited, criticism of the show. I could also point out more other more minor criticisms of the Tudors. Some critics have complained about the costumes, which don't necessarily fit the era of Henry VIII's reign. There was a scene in which a bishop of the Church of England, who supports Henry VIII's divorce, tries to convince Thomas More to attend the wedding of Anne Boleyn. And the bishop is actually dressed in the clerical dress of a, a modern bishop of the Church of England. Um, you can tell this by the fact that some of his garments are purple, which is characteristic of bishops of the Church of England, and something I'm pretty sure bishops didn't wear in the 1530s. And of course, every character in the show is young and attractive, even a young version of Mary Tudor, who is blue-eyed and pretty in the show. But if one has to choose something to get inaccurate in the film, it, it, better, it is better that it be some of the physical elements, such as clothing and the like, rather than the beliefs of the people who inhabit the world the film depicts. Next section, the good, dramatizing history. Now for the good stuff. What did the show get right? Well, let us, well, first of all, let us praise the show's producer for being on the nose, historically speaking, especially with regards to season two, when most of the Reformation episodes took place. In virtually every episode of that season, and indeed in every season, there is at least one quote-unquote on-the-nose scene where two people are talking to each other, obviously for no dramatic reason, but in order to fill the audience in on background they otherwise would not have. While this may be problematic from a dramatic standpoint, from an historical point of view, it shows how much the makers of the Tudors thought it mattered that the audience have the uh, historical background to understand the show, most of which was, as far as I can call, uh, and recall, accurate. What makes this especially impressive to me is that, unlike, say, uh, the HBO show Rome, where the backdrop for the show is the Civil War and the Fall of the Republic, the material for much of the tutors had to do with subjects that are often difficult to dramatize. One doesn't need much exposition to explain a civil war to a modern audience, as in Rome, but the Reformation is a whole other matter. 
Dramatizing the break between Pompey and Caesar into a film is not nearly as difficult. Dramatizing the difference between Catholic and Lutheran soteriologies, or between Catholic and Protestant ecclesiology, is exceedingly difficult. The show did this uh, about as well as one could, be, one could expect. Often enough, it came in the form of clunky dialogue, but they got across the essential vision of Moore, Henry, and refreshingly, someone like Thomas Cromwell, without dumbing it down. To give an example, Thomas Cromwell, Henry's secretary who helped make the Reformation happen, was portrayed by Robert Bolt as a scheming, almost atheistic Machiavellian, whereas in reality he was a genuine Protestant with Lutheran sympathies. This was portrayed fairly well, I thought, by contrast in the show. This is no mean achievement, and they deserve much kudos for it. And this historical background that the show delivered was, as I noted above, for the most part, accurate. It is largely, from what I can tell, based off of the best of recent scholarship. As an aside, recent scholarship as early as, you know, the last decade, probably moved on since then. Um, this uh, comes through in the scene where Thomas Cranmer, Henry's Archbishop of Canterbury, is having dinner with his wife and another nobleman, nobleman sympathetic to the, to the Protestant cause. The, scenes, the scene ends with a revelation that Cramer has been transporting his wife around in a cart in order to avoid her being seen. He married her in Germany, and this was before Henry had made the break with Rome. This little detail is quite true, as it was given no variety by Dearman McCulloch in his biography of Thomas Cranmer. Another example of the series, uh, the series' care for the historical act for historical accuracy, is the treatment of the Reformation among the people of England, views of which have shifted quite dramatically in the past thirty years. The execution of John Fisher, John Fisher, the lone bishop to hold out against Henry's break with Rome, is a good example of this. Fisher gives a in the scene. Fisher gives a speech in which he enjoins the people present to love the king in a dramatic gesture and in a dramatic gesture, asks for their prayers as he goes to his death. When he does, the crowd starts shouting, quote, God bless you, Cardinal Fisher, Cardinal Fisher, until he is uh, uh, killed. Uh, Fisher had been made a cardinal just before his death, but was executed, quote, before the hat was on, unquote, so the saying went. Now, the scene itself seems made up to me, but this is part of its genius in my estimation. It dramatizes in a minute or two of screen time uh, uh, something that was true. Fisher was actually very popular with the people of London, widely known as a popular preacher. And uh, Fisher was actually scheduled to be executed on June 24th. Uh, but when the government realized that this was the same day as the Feast of John the Baptist, you know, the one where John the Baptist gets beheaded for <laughs> accusing the king of adultery, um, the uh, government moved the execution up a day to avoid drawing too many parallels with the biblical story, which Londoners knew quite well. The same care was taken in the case of uh, the Pilgrimage of Grace, which appears in the uh, third season of the um, of the show. The Pilgrimage of Grace was a mostly nonviolent reaction against the closing of the monasteries in the north of England, in which thousands of people marched south, bearing the banner of the five wounds of Christ, to protest the closing of the monasteries. And this rising nearly toppled Henry's regime, and his Machiavellian destruction of its leaders likely saved the dynasty for posterity. An emphasis on the largely top-down nature of the Reformation is something many, though not all, historians have stressed in the wake of several decades of revisionist works in the field, and the makers of the series did fairly admirably in portraying this aspect of it. Are there slips? Certainly. No one should expect perfection from filmmakers in regard to historical dramas. 
What audience should expect is that they make an effort to acquaint themselves not only with the basic history of the period uh, their films or shows are set in, but to also take seriously the beliefs of the people they are portraying, without treating them with condescension or disdain. For an example of such condescension and disdain in films set in the later Tudor period, see the film Elizabeth and its successor, Elizabeth the Golden Age, which are truly egregious in this regard. But Tudor's does this well and deserves credit for it seeing as the opposite is so much more common in historical films. Next section, the drama. Okay, so it's a pretty well done, for the most part, depiction of the Tudor period, at least for its core, belief, if, core beliefs, if not in every single detail. Why is this series dramatic? Why is it good television? First, as I said before, it is basically a soap opera. The court intrigues, sexual escapades, and political machinations provide the basic fodder for most episodes in the show. As I mentioned above, however, the material they work with is not necessarily conducive to great drama, and especially after season two, which concluded the Reformation, I thought the Tudors lost a lot of dramatic, its dramatic intensity for much of season three. But the makers of the show managed to make the most of the last years of Henry VIII's reign, and it ended on what I thought was a stronger, much stronger note. That's probably another thing I should mention at this point. The Tudors is misnamed, since it mostly deals with the life and reign of Henry VIII. The show never gets to the reigns of Mary, Edward, or Elizabeth, though the two daughters make appearances in the show. I imagine that the producers decided it was easier to tell the story of Henry VIII than to embrace the whole of the Tudor dynasty, but I was a bit disappointed when it ended with Henry's reign. I guess one can only expect so much of an, out of an historical drama. The cast of the series did a fine job for the most part, though I didn't think there were necessarily any amazing performances from the cast. Jonathan Rhys Myers as Henry VIII gave the show's producers the young, good-looking version of Henry they naturally required for their historical soap opera. I can't say he is the greatest actor in the world, but he did one thing that I found impressive. He managed to convey the often manic energy that Henry possessed on screen throughout the length of the series. Uh, no mean feat given that so much of the show was focused on Henry's character. The rest of the cast changes uh, throughout the series uh, as it spans nearly 35 years. Jeremy North, uh, who plays Thomas More, is a good actor, and though no one will forget Paul Schofield, he brought an edge and, in and an intensity to the messier vision of More that the show presented, which I thought was refreshing. <clears throat> Other casting choices weren't as quite, in as quite inspired. Uh, I love Sam Neill, but I thought he was only adequate as Wolsey. I uh, just couldn't help thinking he was too thin to be the Cardinal. Um, the less said about Peter O'Toole's, the late, great Peter O'Toole, who I love, the less about, said about his performance as Pope Paul III, the better, I think. Henry Cavill, famous today, uh, who was at the time, um, I wrote this initially, playing uh, Superman, uh, played Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, one of only other two other characters beside Henry to span the entire, entire series. And over the course of the show, Charles Brandon goes from Henry's young boon companion into his, into his reliable but distant servant. And it's kind of through Saville's character, um, uh, Brandon, I say Brandon, or, uh, I guess the name's Brandon, the, Saville in the, in the series, but it's Charles Brandon, um, that the show kind of charts the changes that take place in England over the course of the series. And by the end of the show, one episode, Brandon tells another character that he wishes things were still the way they were before the Reformation. So it's through him they voice this, you know, um, regret for what happened. In reality, uh, he was someone who actually supported Henry's policies and benefited uh, from the seizure of monastic and church property. 
Uh, Natalie Dormer uh, plays the sexed up and very ambitious and, and believable enough. I wish I could say something about the other female characters in the show, but they are also overshadowed by the figure of Henry. They tend to get lost in my mind. Uh, I suppose my favorite series and performance in the series, besides that of North and Reese Myers, was that of Anthony Brophy, who played the Imperial Ambassador Eustace Chapuis. I thought he brought a dignity and gravitas to the role, which was refreshing. From what I can tell, more accurate than the scheming religious hypocrite uh, 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 that Chapuis uh, is presented in the Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons. Ultimately, one of the best things film or long-running TV series like the Tudors uh, 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 about TV series like the Tudors is how it can do one of two things: one, dramatize historical personalities such as Henry VIII; two, dramatize great conflicts by personalizing them, making part of the uh, making them part of a character's makeup. <laughs> the Tudors did both uh, at times excellently. As to the first, whatever else one can say about Henry VIII, and as a papist, I don't normally have much to, go, much that, much to say that is good of him, the show and Reese Myers managed to bring out his energy and dynamism, both good and evil, that made him so ultimately beloved as a king, despite all the mayhem he caused. I'll admit, even I felt sympathetic for Henry by the end of the series, perhaps, perhaps even because of his many faults, his appetites, his obsessions, even if they were destructive, as they all too often were, seemed to humanize him, make him relatable. I'm certain this must have been why the historical Henry VIII was so successful and beloved by so many. It is to the show's credit they were able to make this come alive on screen. As to the second, it is sometimes difficult to dramatize great changes in history because they do not often happen as a single dramatic event or series of events, as in the French Revolution, but occur as a part of a process. We await the day, for example, when some intrepid writer will find a suitable way, suitable way to dramatize the Industrial Revolution. <clears throat> In this case, though there were dramatic moments involved, I was most impressed by how the show captured the beliefs that were at the heart of the Reformation. Perhaps my favorite example of this was a scene in which, uh, at that point, in which Henry was about to finish the legal break with Rome uh, through Parliament, Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, uh, attempts to enlist the aid of Thomas Boleyn, the father of Anne Boleyn, to help him change Henry's mind. Now, uh, I, don't, I actually don't know if this is accurate, but in the series, the actor who plays Thomas Boleyn, Boleyn does a wonderful job of playing him as this despicably evil figure, a man who basically whores out his daughter in order to gain power. So you hate him the first time, the moment he appears on screen. In any case, in this scene I'm talking about, Chapuis tries to is running through the court trying to run down Boleyn, and I can't cannot recall the exact words, but the exchange goes something like this. Chapuis shouts something to Boleyn of to the effect, Lord Boleyn, for the love of Christ and his holy apostles, please help me tell his majesty. And he you know, turns around, Boleyn does, and before he can finish, he says, you know, with this cold, dead look on his face, you know, I'm quoting, quote, the apostles were all frauds who wanted to take people's money. And Chapuis is so shocked at this blasphemy, he crosses himself in a gesture of self-defense. It's a really wonderful, dramatic moment in the series when you see, embodied in these two characters, Chapuis and Boleyn, uh, two very powerful currents in the late medieval world collide. Late medieval piety, Chapuis, confronted with late medieval anti-clericalism, both of which were necessary elements in the drama of the Reformation. Because uh, there were people, by the way, who felt like Boleyn did, that the church was just, you know, this you know, conniving institution and, you know, 
gobbling up land that they could have. They wanted to take their land, so um, but perfect in that regard. I really like that scene, even today. Even today. Conclusion: To sum up, The Tudors is a highly successful historically based soap opera, but one which takes its historical source material seriously, treats the characters and their beliefs with respect and accuracy for the most part, and does so while sustaining dramatic interest more or less throughout a four-year-long series. This type of cable channel drama is all the rage now in the realm of non-historical shows, Breaking Bad, etc., and there are and have been several successful shows that have, that feature historical subjects. Uh, and um, in the next episode, which will be the next episode, I will discuss what I take to be the best of these that I've seen so far, the aforementioned series, Rome. However, you can do worse if you want to have a great costume drama that's um, not too bad historically than to rewatch The Tudors. And that is it for this episode of Controversies in Church History. If you like what you heard here, please go and uh, like uh, like, and subscribe. Like our Facebook page. Go uh, subscribe. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Um, on YouTube, please, we're trying to uh, get the membership up. Um, hopefully one day monetize the channel, increase the number of subscribers. Uh, go to our, you can check the, uh, the website, churchcontroversies.com for updates and new material, uh, as well as our Patreon page. If you know anyone who wants to support this, you know, thinks what we're trying to do here is important, uh, educate people about uh, the past and how it's presented in our culture uh, and give people knowledge of the background of the, of the Catholic Church, please uh, uh, you know, think about becoming a patron and, and supporting the podcast and helping me out. It would definitely help me at this point. But most of all, thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you for uh, contributing in that way. And um, be on the lookout for new episodes uh, in the next week or two. And hopefully, God willing, another month or so, the more intensive episodes you've come to expect. But thank you again, everyone. God bless. Have a wonderful week.